Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you.
get up, get up out of that grave. Get up, get up, get up, get up out of that grave. Get up, get up, get up, get up out of that grave. Get up, get up, get up, get up out of that grave. Get up, get up, get up, get up out of that grave. Get up, get up, get up, get up out of that grave. Get up, get up, get up, get up out of that grave. Get up, get up, get up, get up out of that grave.
I've got a passage that I just want to share, and it's called Faithful to the Unfaithful. And if you would, if you'd turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 3. I've heard this chapter is described as the greatest chapter in the Bible. That's saying something. It's also one of the strangest chapters. I'm just going to be right up front with you. And that's why we're kicking the kids out, because it's kind of PG-13. And I don't, I don't say that uh, in any way, but we just want to be careful with that. But as we go through this passage, I want to ask you, I want you to ask yourself something. How do I relate to God? Ask yourself that question. How do I relate to God? For, for me, it's easy. And early on in my walk, I related to God as Lord, right? He is king. 
and, and what he says and what he commands, I should follow that and I should do that. What he says to stay away from, I know that is for my better, so I should stay away from those things. And that's a good way to relate to God. Uh, another way to relate to God is as a shepherd. We're told that he is our shepherd and we're like sheep. And from that image, we see that he watches over us, right? He protects us. He, he cares for us. My go-to way, though, is to relate to God as a father. Uh, growing up, my, my father was not always in my life. He lived a couple states away. He left. And so I had that hole. I had that void. To, so to see my heavenly father in that respect really meant a lot. And now that I am a father, I, I see that even more because I see how I look at my own kids right? I, I want what's best for them. I'm not afraid to discipline them because I know it's going to help them along the way. And so I see my heavenly father in that light as well. I know that I can go to him. I know that he wants me to go to him and spend time with him. Th- those are all good ways to relate to God, but you also have to understand God is revealed in this particular piece of scripture in this passage today. It goes much deeper than all those ways that I just mentioned. Hosea 3, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turned to other gods and loved the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lithic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way towards you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last day. Father, this is your word. Lord, may we only hear it today. Father, soften our hearts so that we can accept it. Open our eyes and ears so that we hear from you, Lord, and transform us to look more like you. Transform us to send us out into this world of brokenness. Father, we give you all honor and praise. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It's hot in here. You guys got to quit breathing. All your hot air. All right, don't quit breathing. In this passage that we read, we see the image of God here as a bridegroom, and we see our relationship with God similar to a marriage. We all know that God wants a relationship with us, but this tells us that he wants an intensely personal, intimate relationship with us. One on one hand, and on the other hand, it's one that's binding. It's one that um, is enduring, right? It's not just enough to understand God as, as Lord and, and as a shepherd and, and um, uh, as a father, right? He, he gives this analogy to us so that we can even understand him more. 
This isn't the only place that we see this. We see this in Ezekiel. We see this in uh, Jeremiah and other places. In Isaiah 54, it says this. This is God speaking to Israel, his people. And he says, do not be afraid, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected says your God. And then it says, with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. If you don't understand God as your bridegroom, in this context of marriage, you're missing out on a key way to relate to God. All right, so what can we learn from marriage? I want us to be reminded that uh, marriage is a relationship of priority, of intimacy, and it has life-changing potency in it, right? First priority, if you're married, then your relationship to your spouse has to be the number one priority in your life compared to other people. No one else or nothing else should get in the way of that. If you do that, if you give your spouse that number one priority, your marriage will have a great chance at being strong. If your marriage is strong, that means that even if everything else is a mess in your life, you can still operate out of that strength. Because even if everyone else deserts you, you know that your spouse will not. Your spouse will stand next to you, right? Your spouse will give you that support. Similarly, if we make God the number one priority in our life, no matter what this life throws against us, and we're told, right, this, this world will hate you if you follow me. We know that no matter what, though, you'll have God standing right next to you being there for you, right? Even in the fire, right? This will only happen, though, if God is the priority in your life. God can never be an add-on. Unfortunately, that's how we treat him, right? We pull him out when we need something, when we get in trouble. Otherwise, we're like, Jesus, you just stay in that box. But when I need you, I'll, I'll call you, and you can come out then, and you can solve my problems. He's not a, a booster shot, to get you through something, right? His relationship with you must be the number one priority. Matthew 22, 37 through 38 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, right? Second, marriage is a relationship of intimacy. Uh, You can hide things from your parents, about who you really are. You can hide things from your teachers. You can hide things from your friends, your kids. You can even hide things from yourself, but not your spouse. They'll see. They'll know. They'll see through it because of your relationship is so intimate with them. So when God says, I want a relationship that's like a marriage, he's trying to say, you can't know me from afar, Right? We have to have a a real relationship, an intimate relationship. You you can't just know me formally. You have to know me intimately. I've got to be in every crook and cranny of your life, every inch. I must be there. There can't be any part of you that you hold back from me. Similarly, you can't just know about me. You have to experience my love, right? There has to be a real sense of my love on your heart. So it has to be a relationship of priority. It has to be a relationship of intimacy. And then it also has the chance to be about life-changing potency. 
your spouse because of the nature of the relationship that you have with that person because of the intimacy has massive power to affect your value in a good way or in a not so good way. What do I mean? If somebody in this room comes up to me and says, hey, you're a really kind man, right? Okay, that's, that's good, you know. I'm going to feel a little bit good, sure, but I could be totally faking them out, right? I could be putting on a show. I could be putting on the, the pastor look and have totally fooled them. But if my wife comes up to me, who knows me intimately, right, and she says, you're the kindest man I've ever met, if she would do that, if you would do that, Adivy. <laughs> I can't say fooled her, right? She's driven with me to Chicago when I've been driving in rush hour. She knows me on my worst days. She said that, though. What would that do to my self-esteem, to my value, right? It would, it would be huge, because of the intimacy and the closeness, your, your spouse has this unbelievable ability to just affirm you and heal you if they use it, right? In other words, if your spouse tells you you're beautiful and everybody else tells you you're ugly, you're going to believe your spouse. That goes the other way, though, too. If the world tells you you're beautiful and your spouse tells you you're ugly, that's going to hurt, Right? Now, let me give you an example of how your relationship with God can do that too, right? Uh, God doesn't just say, I'm like a husband. He says, I'm like a bridegroom, right? Isaiah 62, 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so I delight in you. That's huge. That's huge when you get it, right? If you aren't a guy and you, you haven't been married, I don't know if you can fully get this, but I, I know you've seen a wedding, right? But there is this moment that God is evoking right here when he says that. Uh, you've all seen it like when the, when the groom comes up front and he's standing next to the minister. There's this moment where all of a sudden his bride comes into view, Right? And he sees her almost like for the very first time. She's, she's in this gown that you probably haven't seen. She's, she's done her makeup and hair in a way that you probably haven't ever seen. And, and you're just dumbfounded by it. You're just amazed. It, it, it tugs at your heart, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, she starts coming down the aisle. I, I remember that moment. I can picture that in my head. And I remember Adivy as she started to walk down the aisle towards me, and I was just captivated by her, right? Thinking, oh my goodness, look at what's about to happen. Think about how that bridegroom feels, and know that's the terminology that God uses to describe how he feels about you, right? Some of you need to, to get this right? Uh, uh, when I saw her, I just wanted to run down the aisle and sweep her off the feed, but I know that would just wreck the ceremony. <laughs> That'd just be a little bit weird. But a, a, a bridegroom wants to, to do that. He wants to promise his bride the world, right? Uh, I love you so much. I'll gladly lay down my life for you. That's how he feels. And God has the audacity to use that same term, 
and how he sees you, right? The God of the universe delights in you. That's the kind of love that he has for you. And when you get that, when you truly get that, truly understand that, right, it has life-changing potency. It can set you free, right? It'll wreck your world in the best way. Who cares what anyone else thinks when the God of the universe has those kind of thoughts about me, right? Some of you just don't have a clue yet about that. And you think you have to earn it. You think you have to be good enough to get it. And when you're not, you think that he doesn't see you in that light. Or you see God as king. Go do my bidding, servant, right? Or you see even God as your father, but maybe you had a rough relationship with your father, not the best father. So you see God in that light, right? Now you need to understand him as a bridegroom, wanting to sweep her up. There's nothing more potent than when you truly get this. So throughout the book, we see that uh, Hosea is telling us that our relationship with God is like a marriage. The second thing that Hosea teaches us is that our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. All right. Going back to this passage, verse one says, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. That word again refers to chapter one, which God said to Hosea, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of, of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. How would you like that, right? Here's the woman that I want for you, Hosea, a promiscuous woman, an adulterous life, because it's a sign of what the Israelites have been with me. They've been a land of guilty of adultery and departing from the Lord. This adulterous wife was a little bit more prophecy than I'm sure he wanted, right? Because what God is actually telling him is that She's going to rip your heart out, right? With, with her actions, she's going to absolute, absolutely just break it. She won't be faithful to you. That's the woman that I want you to marry. Why? Because this nation is acting in the same way towards me. Because these people are guilty of the vilest form of adultery and unfaithfulness against me. People are going to see you and see this relationship and maybe realize what they're doing to me. So he marries her and she has three kids. I don't have time to go through them all, but there's a, an important name with each one of them. The third one's name is Loami, which means not mine, because she's been unfaithful to him. After that, she actually leaves him. She goes and moves in with a, a, another man. It gets worse because in chapter two, she becomes a prostitute. It continues to get even more worse because somehow after that profession or in that profession, something happens and she finds herself in an even worse situation. She's being sold as a slave. How did that happen? We, we don't know. Either she fell into debt or maybe the, the man that she was with trafficked her and then when she was no longer usable, maybe he thought he'd cut his losses and just sell her. Regardless, it's incredibly sad, right? Incredibly hard. It's as far down as a person could fall. It's as broken as a person could be. 
after this, and in this, I'm sorry, this is the image that God used to describe his people and what they're doing, right? This is the image of us. We've all been unfaithful to God in one way or another, right? The question is, how will God respond to that, to that unfaithfulness? What's the message that he wants to convey to his people, to us this morning? He says, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is adulterous, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. The sacred raisin cakes were the delicacies that were served at idol feasts, among other things. Another depth to our unfaithfulness. And I hope we get a sense today of the pain that it must cause our Lord and Savior. When we choose other gods and idols over him. If you're like me in this passage, I'm thinking, how could she choose those things, right? How could she go down this path when she had a man that was faithful to her? She had a man that that loved her. How could she do that? But we've all done it. We've all chased after the sacred raisin cakes of the world, the delicacies that we thought were so appealing to us, but really were not. We all have been unfaithful. This, this image gives a whole other understanding to the heart of God. If we just relate to God as a king, when a king sees a subject and that subject doesn't do what he should do, how does that king respond? In anger, right? When, when a shepherd has a sheep that's gone astray and is being dumb, right? That dumb sheep. But when a spouse sees his wife or husband in the arms of another person, that's a, that's a gut punch that you just don't recover from. That hits differently. Some of you know that feeling of what it's like to be betrayed, and, and God says, though, that's the impact of your waywardness with me. In Jeremiah 2.4, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, I remember how as a bride you loved me, but you said, I will not serve you. Does a maiden forget her jewelry and a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number by the roadside, you sat waiting for lovers. You ran after other gods until your feet were bare and your throat was dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods. I can't help it. I must go after them. But can the gods you made for yourself save you when you're in trouble? What are you doing, O devastated one, says the Lord? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why shade your eyes with paint? You adorn yourself in vain, for your lovers despise you, and they seek your life. My friends, our unfaithfulness doesn't just affect God, right? But it also impacts us as well. Whatever we choose to put into place, whatever we choose to run after and ignore God for, right, only leads to emptiness. Can, can that God save us, right? This is easy to see with addiction. We turn to those things like alcohol and drugs and we kid ourselves, right? That, that's what we need. That's what will give us peace. And those are the things that 
take our lives, or at least rule our lives? What do you put ahead of God? What do you chase after? What are you going after? Is it money? Is it another person? Is it intimacy with someone? If I could only have that, right, then I would be set. These things will never satisfy your soul. Never. These things cannot save you. They're just idols in the end, and you will be their slave. They can only curse you. The passage says they seek your life. So our relationship is like a marriage. We also learn our relationship is like a bad marriage. But thirdly, we learn how God healed his marriage and what it cost him. Right? Let's see how he told Hosea to do it. Verse 1, the Lord said to me, go again. She left him. She's been unfaithful. She's up for sale. Right? And God says, go show your love to your wife again. And so he does. And verse 2, it says, so I bought her. From what we can tell about Israel in this time period in the 8th century B.C., this is when Israel has decayed spiritually, and, and she looks like all the other nations around him, and therefore there's a good chance that there would have been a, actually a public auction, a public slave auction. Gomer would have been exposed so people could see what they were purchasing. She would have been let out right on display, and the, the bidding would have started And I imagine that she probably would have had her eyes closed because it was the only thing that she could do to shield herself during this hard time. And so she hears the voices, right? Ten shekels, nothing. Eight shekels, five. Will anyone give us five? And she hears a voice. I'll give you five, right? The bidding starts. Another person says eight. Another person says 10, and then something happens. She recognizes a voice, right? It's her husband. And she's wondering, what in the world is this guy doing after the way I've treated him, right? 10 shekels, 12, 13, 15, 15 shekels and a homer and lethic of barley sold to Hosea. And he would have come up and he would have taken off his cloak and he would have covered her nakedness and led her away. And I bet she was thinking, why would he still want me? Right? Maybe her first thought was, I know, revenge. He's going to pay me back. He's going to punish me, right? Now he can, I hurt him. Now he can hurt me. But verse 3 shows, no, he speaks tenderly to her. He tells her, I want to dwell with you. I don't want you as a slave, right? I want you as my wife. For a time, we can't be intimate with each other. You can't be intimate with anyone, including me, and I won't be intimate with you, but you'll be mine and I'll be yours. And there has to be a period in which we do all the hard work, and that's what that's for, right? One commentary said that this time was critical because there were habits that needed to be broken. There was work that needed to be done. There were painful realities that needed to be processed. Hosea Hosea didn't have this naive notion from God that says, you know, God is just going to make all this better, just turn it all to roses, right? There was some work that had to be done in this relationship, but there was a price that he was willing to pay. 
He paid a price financially, right? He also paid a price culturally. Could you imagine this man of God, this prophet, marrying this promiscuous woman? woman? Could you imagine what everybody must have said and thought? all the rumors that must have been floating around. And can you imagine when she did exactly what everybody knew that she would do, and yet he goes and purchases her back to restore her? Can you imagine what they were saying? What are you doing, Hosea? Know this, loving flawed people always involves a substitutionary sacrifice. It's just the way it is. If you have a friend that is going through a tough time, right, and that friend calls you up and says, hey, I just need somebody to talk to you, it's going to cost you, right? You know, you're probably your evening shot. You're going to have to go spend time with that person. They're going to feel better, right? But you're going to take some of that burden on you. You're going to pay a price for that. That's just the way it is. That's the way it always is. And Hosea chooses love, and it costs him. How does God pay the price for us? We know the answer, right? But this is the Old Testament. Where does God pay the price to get his people back? The answer is found in in verse 4 and 5. It's a little bit cryptic, cryptic because it's prophecy. It says this, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. David, their king. David's dead at this point. Ah, this must be a descendant of David. And it is because we see in in Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, why don't your disciples fast? And he says something very interesting. He says, do the friends of the bridegroom fast when they're with the bridegroom? right? The bridegroom. Yeah, Jesus is referring to himself in that manner. Everybody knew that the bridegroom of Israel was God, the Lord himself. And Jesus Christ is saying, I'm the bridegroom, but soon I'll be taken away, right? And then they will fast and they will mourn. I'm the bridegroom, but I've come to die. And there's the answer, right? In Jesus Christ, God entered the world. He entered the slave marketplace. On the cross, Jesus Christ died and paid the price to buy us out of captivity. What a price he paid for someone unfaithful like me, right? And he clothed us, covering our nakedness with his righteousness. Today, I hope you see, God has the audacity to say, I'm like that bridegroom. That bridegroom seeing his bride for the first time, coming down that aisle, wanting to run to her, running to to sweep her off into her feet, into her arms. I want to give you the world. I want to lay down my life, right? I'm really like that bridegroom. That's not just rhetoric because that's what we see in Jesus Christ. He did that. He laid down his life. He was the substitutionary sacrifice for us, for our sin, for our evils, for our unfaithfulness. And we get 
his righteousness. I hope today you understand even more how much God loves you. I pray that some of you who have keep beating yourself finally see maybe in a new way how he sees you. I hope you find peace and I hope you rest in that. I hope you realize that he takes delight in you because that will flip your life upside down if you get it. If you get it, it's got the power to do that, right? I hope others of you who are chasing after somebody else, something else, an idol, something that will never satisfy you, I hope you repent of that and you come back to him and you give him your life. There are consequences when we say no to God and and I'm not just going to skate over that, right? It has to lead to repentance. There has to be a restoration. I want to give you a chance to do that today. We've got communion tables set up on, on both sides of the room, right? As these teens come and they're singing the last songs, I want to invite you to make sure you're right with Christ, right? If you're not, I want to invite you to repent. And then I want you to renew your vows to him, with communion. That's what communion is, right? Christ comes to us all. He says, follow me. What he's really saying is marry me, commit to me, right? When we're baptized, it's that outward symbol of what Christ has done. When we're baptized, we put on that ring and tell everyone, hey, we belong to him. And then there comes moments in our lives where we remember what he's done for us, where we renew our vows, and that's what I want us to do today. So as they're singing, would you, would you make sure that you're right with him? And when you are, just make yourself find a way over to one of these tables and just have communion and thank him for being your Lord and Savior. If you don't know him, I'm going to be back there. Come talk to me. And I'll share that with you. Amen? Let's stand. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that, yes, you are our Lord. You are our Savior. You deserve nothing less than us bowing down in worship with you. Father, yes, we understand that you are our shepherd, that you watch out for us. And Father, you are our Father. You care about us. You cared about us enough to come to this earth and to lay down your life for us. Father, would you let this reality, though, that you're the bridegroom, and that you delight in us, sink into our hearts, and transform us, Lord. Father, we love you, and we give you all praise. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
Yeah. 